This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast, Science Talk, posted on August 20th, 2012. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... We have no idea of the gulf that separates our mind from people 100 years ago in America. We've put on scientific spectacles, and they had on utilitarian spectacles. That's James Flynn. He studies intelligence at the University of Otago in New Zealand, and he's the discoverer of what's called the Flynn Effect, the consistent rise in IQs over time around the world. He features prominently in an article called Can We Keep Getting Smarter? by Tim Folger in the September issue of Scientific American magazine. Back on July 10th, Flynn visited the Scientific American offices, where he chatted with a group of editors. What follows is an edited version of that wide-ranging discussion. The first voice you'll hear is senior editor Michael Moyer, who asks Flynn about his latest book titled, Are We Getting Smarter? You'll also hear me and senior editor Gary Sticks. And what's the big change in this book since your your original book? Well, one of the big surprises is that Scandinavia, the IQ gains tailed off towards the end of the last century. And many of us thought, and I had an open mind, that that would mean that they would tail off in the rest of the developed world. Well, three data sets are in now from America, Britain, and Germany, and they haven't. They seem to be humming along on the Wechsler tests, you know, the wiss and the waste, at just about three points per decade. We're in the 21st century a decade now, and there they still are. And this revises one's calculations a bit. I had thought the 21st century would see the developing world catching up. Well, it is, because their gains are going even faster. It'll be tougher to catch up than I thought. I think it's wrong to look at the developing world in isolation from what's going on there economically, because IQ rises with modernity. Uh, Lynn and many others make the mistake of sort of thinking you have to leap from an IQ of 70 to 100 and then you modernize. Well, it's like going up a ladder. You gain a bit in terms of the modern mindset, you modernize the economy a bit, and then you go up again, you know, slowly. You mentioned a number of times um, this, this uh, idea of modernity and how that's yeah. the real driver and all this. Could you say a little bit more about what, what you mean by modernity? Well, take our friend, one of the disciples of Pijak, Luria, the great Russian psychologist. He interviewed people in Russia in the 1920s who had not yet entered modernity. These were the headmen of villages. They were intelligent. And he said to them, Where there is always snow, bears are white. At the North Pole, there is always snow. What color are the bears there? And they said, I've never been there. The only bears I've seen are brown bears. And he said, what do my words convey? And they said, such a thing is not to be settled by words, but by testimony. If a wise man came to us from the North Pole and testified that bears were white, we might believe him. He said, there are no camels in Germany. Hamburg is a city in Germany. Are there camels there? 
And they said, again, I've never been to Hamburg. And he said, but what do you think? And they said, well, maybe Hamburg is a village and too small to accommodate camels. They were not willing to take the hypothetical seriously. They had a utilitarian framework, the same as Americans did in 1900. You ask an American kid in 1900 what dogs and rabbits have in common, they say you use dogs to hunt rabbits. The right answer is that they're both mammals. Today, that answer would become automatically. We have put on science, we have no idea of the gulf that separates our mind from people a hundred years ago in America. We've put on scientific spectacles and they had on utilitarian spectacles. They were splitters. If you're making use of the environment for advantage, you distinguish things. This animal leaves this track. This dog is good for hunting and that one isn't. We're lumpers. We are used to thinking that you classify the world as a prerequisite to understanding it. And we are highly willing to use logic on the abstract. Now, you may think this is trivial, but it's what higher education requires and virtually all the managerial professions is this type of mindset. And it's not trivial even in other areas. Uh, I, of course, am by trade a moral philosopher. I only got into psychology accidentally. My main interest is moral philosophy and epistemology, but I've had this other area as a second field now for many years. And if my brother and I argued with my father about race, he was an Irishman of the old school, and he hated the English so much he didn't have much energy to hate anyone else. But he had a mild prejudice against blacks. And if my brother and I said to him, what if you woke up black tomorrow? He would say, that is the dumbest thing you've ever said. Who do you know? Well, a modern racist would realize that you're asking him to be logically consistent about color. And he'll say something like, well, if I woke up black, it would change me as a person. So the quality of moral argument has been elevated by our ability to take the hypothetical seriously. The same is true of political argument. If you look at the debate over women's suffrage in 1918, you find congressmen putting in the congressional record things like, my wife says she doesn't want to vote, and that settles it for me. Who would put that in the congressional record today? Be humiliating. You have to have at least a facade of logical justification, don't you? I don't know. I think that mindset is to the Congress. Unless you're running for president for the Republican Party. Most, most of us in New Zealand were totally disoriented by what we saw on television. We, such a person could not get a nomination for a parliamentary seat, much less a president. Even on the conservative side. No, no side. No party would put up someone like these people who are the ignorant and uninformed. But I have discovered a lot of interesting things that don't have to do with the developing world. I did one thing that I had not done before and no one else had done, and I looked at the waste subtest data, where the gains were there. And I'd always said from looking at WIST data with school children that there had been massive gains on these tests that require using logic on abstractions, like block design, picture arrangement. Block design is a three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle. And there had been very small gains on vocabulary, general information, and arithmetical reasoning. The adult data that I now have analyzed in my new book is a revelation. There have been enormous adult gains on vocabulary. American school children over the last 50 years for active vocabulary now, not passive. Passive is what you can read. 
Active is what you can use. Active vocabulary, American adults since 1950 have gained 17.4 IQ points over a full standard deviation. Kids have gained three, I'm sorry, four. So an enormous gulf has opened up. Now this is where, you know, people don't look at the right things with IQ gains. They are really symptoms of social evolution. What has happened to teenage subculture over the last 50 years that adults can no longer socialize them into their normal speech community? You know, adult gains ought to be transferred to older school children automatically. They live with them. So if they're in a vocabulary-enriched household with adults, a 16-year-old ought to automatically. But they aren't. That is, this is un, uh, the, the the kids can understand their parents. There, there's not been an enlargement of the passive vocabulary gap, but the active vocabulary gap has grown enormously between 1950 and 2000. And so, now, what do you think the components of the subculture are that have contributed? Well, I think partially it's highly visual. I find my students and every professor finds it. You ask them to name their favorite author today no favorite author, or Wilbur Smith, mm-hmm. or Tolkien. Uh, Fifty years ago, they would say Huxley, Steinbeck, Faulkner. Partially it's that. Partially they seem to have developed their own distinctive speech and are highly resistant to mimicking the speech of adults in certain circles. Uh, you know, the word teenager was never used before 1950. That's a post-1950 word. When I was a kid growing up, I'm 78 now, it was like every other society in the world. Adolescence was a time of impatience when you wanted to become an adult and get adult prerogatives. And these were money, privacy, and sex. But today you get all of these as a teenager without leaving home and earning a living and getting married. You know, they have accessed... You now have people who seem to want to remain teenagers through their 30s. Now, I should say that this damage is not permanent. The 17-year-old today cannot mimic in active speech his parents' vocabulary, but they go to university. During the university years, about a fourth of the gap is made up, and then when they get in the world of work and have to speak like adults, they very quickly learn to do so. Uh, So what's interesting here is not that we're raising a generation that won't be able to talk as we do. They'll be able to talk like us. Uh, What's interesting is what it tells us about the uh, uh, nature of teenage subculture, how distinctive it's begun. You know, it's as if you're dealing with a Welsh-speaking minority, in a sense, in the United Kingdom. Uh, But they, they eventually pick it up. The other thing interesting that I picked up in looking at waste data was the bright tax. Contrary to all everything that is expected in the literature, between 65 and 89, of course, many cognitive abilities fade. But uh, what I never expected to find is the brighter you are, the quicker the downward curve of your analytic abilities. The analytic abilities, you know, are the things tested by Raven's number series and this stuff. If you were at, uh, on all the Wechsler subtests at 17, 
if you trace someone who is, let's say, at 85 on all subtests and compare them to someone who's at 130, the person at 130 in old age goes down about 30 points on analytic ability, or 35, and the someone at uh, 75 goes down 20, at 85 goes, and it's at every level is more progressive. That is, the brighter you are, the heavier the bright text. Verbal, you get a bright bonus. That is, the brighter you are, the less the decline in verbal intelligence. Now, does that relate to the work, for example, on cognitive preserve and Alzheimer's? Because that probably is more related to verbal than it is to analytical. Well, I've tried to set up research designs that would disentangle physiological from other environmental factors. Mm -hmm. And I put forward, you can put forward two hypotheses. The people in this room are in a highly souped-up verbal environment in terms of who you deal with. You also probably have to use in your work your analytic facilities much more than other people. Let's take the verbal first. When you retire, you may retire into an even more enriched verbal community of your peers. You don't have to do with employees and the public so much you play bridge with your friends. And it could be environmental that the reason that people with uh, high verbal abilities, they actually, after retirement, have an enhanced gulf in terms of environmental enrichment. It may be that their analytical abilities are used mainly at work. And while at work, they get much more analytic exercise than the average person. After work, that diminishes. You know, it's not. Or it could be that the analytic portions of the brain are like a high-performance car. They require more maintenance in old age than an ordinary model. And we just don't know. I think it's probably a combination of the two. There is one study that seems to show that there is a genetic influence on how quickly analytic abilities fade in old age, which is a small pointer towards a physiological factor. But that's the only stuff I've got. Whatever the curve downward, whether you decline quicker if you're bright for analytic ability, and the same is true of processing speed, working memory is bright neutral. Verbal bright bonus, working memory bright neutral, processing speed and analytic bright text. Whatever the reason for the downward go, it's still good to exercise your brain. You're familiar with the London Taxi Cab Diver study. You know, they had enlarged hippocampi because they use their mapping skills much more than the rest of us. This is why when people ask me, are we more intelligent, I say, I'll tell you four things that are much more informative than that. At uh, conception, I don't think our brains would look any different. At autopsy, we would have used our brains over our lifetime very differently than our ancestors. And just as a weightlifter has different muscles at autopsy than a swimmer, Probably the analytic portions of your brain are enlarged compared to your ancestors, while the rote memory portions are not. You don't have to remember who your third cousins were and their, their wives and kids. Uh, as to whether our ancestors with this mean IQ of 70 were mentally retarded, of course they weren't. They could use logic on the utilitarian and function perfectly well in the concrete world. 
But we, thanks to the use of logic on the hypothetical and our propensity to classify, can attack a much wider range of problems. And I say, you tell me whether we're more intelligent. This is the cash value of the change. The word is unimportant. I would prefer to say our brains are more modern. But modernity has touched a lot of places in the world at this point. So do you eventually see a leveling off? I cannot see the... uh, There are three levels of causality. The uh, most remote level, of course, is the Industrial Revolution. I mean, it brought us into modernity and made it worthwhile educating, mass-educating people, and scientific spectacles go with formal education. Uh, That is the ultimate cause. The proximate cause is how our minds are different in the IQ test room and in everyday life. You know, my father instinctively rebelled against using logic on the abstract. I don't. The intermediate causes are undoubtedly, I think, more formal schooling, more cognitively demanding jobs, more cognitively demanding leisure, There's some truth in what this fellow Johnson says. If you look at the TV programs, the plot lines are much more complicated today than they were 50 years ago. Uh, Smaller families, much richer interaction. You see, if you have two adults and a child in the home, the vocabulary atmosphere is dominated by adult speech. If you have a black solo mother and three kids, it's dominated by childish speech. So richness, and you think, this has got to stop eventually. The families are getting so small that we're virtually reaching replacement value. And indeed, in some ways, we're retrogressing because they're more solo parents, which means a worse parent-child ratio. Uh, It seems to me that formal education, sooner or later, has got to reach a limiting factor in terms of how much it makes our mind scientific. I mean, at a certain point, you just tend to classify and use logic on the hypothetical. Now, I don't see how it can be pushed much further. And at a certain point, we probably stuck in all the professional, managerial, and technical jobs we can featherbed into the system. You know, I guess you can have hospital administrators triplicating their functions rather than just duplicating their functions. But there there should be a limit. And that is why I'm a little surprised that in countries like America, Britain, and Germany, the IQ gains are soldiering on. I thought the Scandinavian model is what we face. You know, there, the family size, the elimination of poverty, the spread of good formal education, these things have reached a limit. I'm curious, is... um as these gains keep going on, as you say, in the U.S., and U.K., Germany... They seem to be buzzing along at about three IQ points a decade. And yet we've been modern for quite a ways That's right. now. Well, well, I did a study, and the new book I have a study, and it was very frustrating. I said, I'm going to divide the IQ tests into three parts. The subtests that looked like they had to do with modernization, like block design and mazes... The subtests that look as if they are focused primarily around education like information, vocabulary, and arithmetical reasoning. And by the way, one of my findings is that we have totally failed. You know, here we've had a period where 
between 1950 and today, rather than 12% of Americans experiencing some tertiary education, it's over 50%. What sort of arithmetical reasoning gain has there been? About three IQ points. So we haven't cracked it. With all of the enhancement of education, we cannot get people to think mathematically. And if you look at the uh, product, if you look at the nation's report card, big gains at seven, tail off by 12, gone at 17. When they have to start thinking mathematically to do geometry and algebra, the gains go. But you must temper the importance of IQ with characterological traits like self-discipline and deferred gratification. The classic study here is the Seligman-Duckworth one in Pennsylvania, where kids at 14, at the beginning of their eighth grade, were given both an IQ test and ranked on a self-control measure. Part of the self-control measure was the impressions of their teachers and parents, but part of it was the classic experiment of being given an envelope sealed with a dollar bill, and if you brought it back a week later, you got two dollars. And they found that the self-restraint index and the IQ index were just about equally predictive. So it would be wrong. You, You cannot if your genetic endowment for intelligence is extremely low. No amount of effort will get you into Harvard. There are IQ thresholds, but as you say, the normal IQ threshold for getting into Berkeley in 1967, and I have data from Berkeley, the normal IQ threshold there was seven points lower for Chinese Americans than for white Americans getting into Berkeley. You know, if the whites started at 120, the Chinese started at 113. I don't have data on gender, but I would bet my soul that if boys started at 122, girls started at 118. And clearly, if you take an individual who is on fire with the desire to grapple with cognitively significant problems, we cracked uh, a, a problem with the identical twin studies. The identical twin studies showed that genes were overwhelmingly dominant in IQ differences. Uh, For example, if you take randomly selected individuals, they'll differ by 16.92 IQ points. Identical twins separated at birth who grew up normally differ by four or five. And this led Jensen to conclude that three quarters of IQ variance was genetic and only a quarter was environmental for obvious reasons, you know. Identical twins have identical genes. Uh, Yet, IQ gains over time showed environmental factors of enormous potency. So how do we square this evidence that environment is so weak? And we set up the Dickens, Holland, you probably know from my work, the Dutch gained 20 points on ravens in one generation, and Vroon actually dug out the 18-year-old of today recruits their own father's IQ scores. And over that generation, there'd still been a 20-point game, which is huge. Well, the Dickens-Finn model says this. Take basketball. Uh, any of you from Indiana? Probably not. But you all know who Larry Bird was. Sure. Yes, okay. Indiana is a basketball mad state. Identical twins born in Indiana. Separated at birth. Since they have identical genes, they are both tend to be about four inches taller than average and a slightly quicker reflex arc. 
One is raised in Muncie and one in Terre Haute. Thanks to their identical genes, even in preschool basketball, they both get selected more often. You know, how you used to choose. That means when they get to grade school, they have already have an enriched basketball environment because they've had more play. Tend to get on their grade school team. Now they both have team play. Tend to make their high school team. Now both have professional coaching. That is, separated identical twins are not randomly dis- distributed to environments. They selectively imitate one another's environments. Since they have identical genes, the environmental selection gives them environments far more in common. In the twin studies, all this is counted as genes. When these two kids grow up, they will be far closer together for basketball quotient than randomly selected individuals. But what they have in common is not only the same genes, but they both had team play, professional coaching, and all these powerful environmental variables have been harnessed to genes. So that explains why genes look so feeble in twin studies, because their potency is masked by the fact that they are correlated with genetic differences. You would have loved to have studied the Van Arsdale twins. I probably would have, yes, that's right, I've heard of them. (laughs) Now let's take IQ gains over time, Uh, basketball over time. When I was a kid on my high school basketball team, I was reasonably good. And I graduated, I was 17 in 1951. And some of us were kicking around during the holidays, and five years later the coach said, come back and scrimmage the varsity. They just killed us. And it wasn't that they were taller and quicker. The game had just changed. They could shoot with either hand. That never occurred to me. If I approach you, and I can break either to my right or left to make a layup, It's much more difficult for you to anticipate if you know I've got to break to my right. They just killed us. When television came into America, basketball took on the aspect of a glamour sport. And ghetto kids who couldn't uh, afford a catcher's mask and a first baseman's mitt and bats and balls, they could all pool together and get a basketball. And there was an explosion of skills, and this brought in what uh, we call the social multiplier. The rising mean drags up all the individuals. That is, uh, as soon as kids started shooting layups left-handed, everyone had to follow suit till you were left behind. And then you started doing a close-to-the-basket hook with your left hand, and people had to develop that skill. And then you started passing with your left hand, and people had to develop that skill. So over generations an exogenous environmental factor can come into the mix and bring an enormous escalation of skills over time. So that's the solution to the dilemma. Individual differences within a generation, genetic differences have their hand on the multiplier throttle. If you're a bit taller and quicker than I, you begin to harness all the environmental advantages of that. So the genetic difference between us captures the environmental input. Between generations, the potency of environmental factors stands out in all its nakedness because there's no genetic upgrading in one generation. And the environmental factors are seen for the enormous potency they have. 
So this was very satisfying to us because we had been baffled. What the hell's going on here? In this book I am just publishing uh, with Cambridge, the last chapter is entitled The Sociological Imagination. That, of course, was a phrase coined by C. Wright Mills in his book of the name. Every, anyone remember C. Wright Mills, the Columbia sociologist? And the besetting sin, you see, as an amateur coming from outside, it struck me almost immediately, because I've never taken psychology or read a psych textbook. And what I've noticed over my 20 years holiday in this discipline is the extent to which people who study IQ data and even other data about individual differences never concoct a sociological scenario that might explain the data. They think it's self-evident. Since twins have closer IQs when they're raised apart, it's got to be all genes. You don't actually look at a social dynamic that might explain the phenomena that's why. I keep saying there, there are people behind those numbers. Unless you can give me a social scenario, don't tell me you know what these... Uh, it, it drove me crazy when people said black women have no desire for a stable marriage and are licentious. Because, of course, I published uh, in Where Have All the Liberals Gone? the data, and it shows that for every hundred black women of marriageable age, there are only 57 black men who are still alive, uh, not in prison, not on drugs, or not, uh, you know, uh, were employed even half time last year. When Russian women after World War II came back with 25% of the men killed, everyone assumed there would be lots of solo mother families. Black women we crucify, they're even worse off, they're only 57 viable men, and whatever racial intermarriage exists disproportionately takes stable black men out of the pool, two of them leave for every white husband that comes in. So racial intermarriage actually exacerbates the problem. I have finally set to rest in this book one of the hypotheses which is used most often to create a racial hierarchy. You've heard of Rushton, Philip Rushton, and he has this Ice Age scenario, which Jensen and Lynn share. And when the human race came out of Africa, the theory is that East Asians, Koreans, Japanese, and Chinese were trapped north of the Himalayas during the Ice Ages and therefore were selected most rigorously by a harsh environment for intelligence and for prudence and all sorts of things. Uh, whites were just north of the Alps, where it was pretty rigorous but not as bad, while the blacks were frolicking in Africa. And this is supposed to mean that uh, East Asians had better genes for IQ, whites are in the middle and blacks at the bottom. But I've been on to this for years, and I finally found relevant data all DNA sequencing now indicates that the Chinese of today are two groups. North of the Yangtze, they did come from the Tibetan Plateau. South of the Yangtze, the Chinese out of Africa came along the coastal route along India and Southeast Asia. And they never were north of the Himalayas. Now, this genetic divide in China is quite clear, and the non-Ice Age genes, of course, are more frequent as you get towards the southern coast. And, uh, and of course, you would have to predict, if you were Lin and Jensen, that IQ would fall off between north and south of China. 
and terribly frustrating. I couldn't get any data. And then, lo and behold, it turns out that the Chinese of Singapore are almost entirely from Guangdong province, which is the southernmost province. And according to Lin's own data, they have the highest IQ in the world. So the Ice Age is no longer. That scenario is now blitzed. Indeed, if you allow for the fact that only three-quarters of the population of Singapore is Chinese and one-quarter is Malay, the Chinese of Singapore on his table are well above mainland Chinese. Now, this doesn't settle the issue. It merely shows that this environmental hypothesis that has been given so much credence uh, has no plausibility. The article, Can We Keep Getting Smarter?, is in the September issue of Scientific American. We'll be right back after this word from Kerry Smith at The Nature Podcast. On The Nature Podcast this week, mapping food preferences along the Silk Road, synthesizing an important hormone in seven easy steps, and the return of the laser's predecessor, the Mazer. That should be of special interest to any fans of the sportscaster Bill Mazer. Just go to www.nature.com slash podcast. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out our slideshow called Blind Sight, animals that see without eyes, such as the butterflies with photoreceptors on their butts. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Cyan, S-C-I-A-M. For Scientific American's Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.